Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 107 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast that is methodically grinding its way in chronological order of original release of all films released or blessed with the uh, branding of the Criterion Collection. Uh, we are here today to talk about two films uh, directed by Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Garin. Uh, the first of them, Tuva Bien and the second, Letter to Jane. Both of these films were released in 1972, just a few months apart, Letter to Jane being somewhat of a postscript to the main feature, Tu Va Bien. It was uh, kind of paired with Tu Va Bien and its uh, later tours of America and other places uh, towards the end of 72, and the two films have been pretty much linked ever since. Uh, so I've got three guests today, uh, as well as myself, to talk about these films. And just for listeners who might be dropping in sort of at random or whatever, just to talk, you know, listen to our conversation about this film, I do want to say that this is a sort of a part three of a short series that I've done. Uh, the previous two episodes kind of taking me pretty dramatically out of the the you know fairly rigid format that I've uh, committed to in that we talked about uh, several films from Jean-Luc Godard in the first episode from 66 and 67 uh, films like um, oh let's see two or things I know about her made in the USA uh, weekend La Chinoise I kind of got them out of order there uh, and then also uh, the previous episode uh, episode 106 we talked about the five films featured in the Goran and Godard box set released by Arrow Academy several years ago. Uh, those are films commonly lumped together as the part of the Ziga Vertov group. And so well, with that kind of uh, somewhat, you know, belabored introduction, let's go ahead and welcome our guests. Um, so let's just go ahead and start there. So William, good morning. William Remmers, welcome back to the show. Hello, David. Hey, and uh, Derek Power, another familiar voice. Derek, you've been with us uh, several times over the years. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine this morning. Thank you. Excellent. And we everything's all right. <laughs> everything's fine. That's all right. That's the the motif, the the motto of this episode here. Yeah, how about bien. Uh, et tu right. And uh, we have our third guest, and he's a first time voice here on uh, Criterion Reflections, uh, coming at us down from Australia. Uh, Andrew Pierce, welcome to the show. Very nice to connect with you again. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, David. Um, as we were talking before the the recording, it's been a few years since we last uh, chatted in podcast world. So it's it's great to be able to join you again to be able to talk about uh, films again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do, Andrew? Uh, you and I we did a podcast. I think I was invited to talk about a film called The Sentimental Bloke. Uh, you kind of refreshed my memory with the title there. And I remember enjoying the conversation and the film. Uh, what was that podcast and, and kind of what are you doing nowadays? So kind of give us a little recap. Yeah. So that podcast that I ran a long time ago was called The Last New Wave, which takes the title from the book uh, that David Stratton, who was an Australian critic, wrote about the Australian New Wave era, which was the 70s and 80s. And so... I kind of took that notion and went running with it as a bit of a passion for talking about Australian films. And so one of the favorite Australian films that I have is The Sentiment of Bloke, which is what we talked about. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that goes back to the 1920s. And I think a lot of people forget that Australian cinema didn't just start in the 1970s. There was, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. a really big thing that was going on in the 1920s and 30s. And then the World War II basically put a stop to that. But what I do at The Curb, I run a website called thecurb.com.au and I focus 
solely on Australian films. I write reviews and do interviews with Australian filmmakers. Uh, recently interviewed Bruce Beresford, of all people, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, and lately I've been doing a, a series on um, the creative people behind the new Justin Kurtzel film, Nitram, which is uh, one of the more highly uh, acclaimed Australian films from this year. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of been my passion. And it's... Uh, I like to highlight the fact that Australia is a little bit more than Mad Max and Picnic at Hanging Rock, you know. They're great films, but I think that people forget that there is a lot more to it than that. And well, of course, there's Crocodile Dundee, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not just Crocodile Dundee, but Crocodile Dundee 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> But yeah, there's there's a lot more to it than just those kinds of main films. Right, and right. that's what I like to highlight and that's what I like to do. And um, one of the things which is kind of fortunate I'm on this show because I, I haven't actually mentioned this in public yet. So I guess this will be a, a bit of a scoop for you all, but I'm be releasing a book in the in the new year that is going to be focusing on the best films Australian films from 2021 which will collate uh, all my reviews as well as a lot of the interviews that I've done throughout the year and uh, some writing from some of the um, the people who have helped make the films happen so uh, keep a lookout for that in the new year uh, oh, so it's pretty exciting to do yeah the, well congratulations on that and I definitely look forward to seeing the your work in print that's that's a pretty cool step uh, so Excellent. And I will certainly include show notes or in the show notes, I'll include links if people want to follow up on checking out the Curb website and any other information you want to share with our listeners, Andrew, send it my way and it'll be right there at the bottom of the page over on CriterionCast.com where our program is hosted. So, well, that's fantastic. Uh, it's really nice to have you. Great to have some, uh, you know, out of the, of the U.S. perspective and, and uh, really fascinated to know what is it that drew your interest and maybe we can just kind of do a roundtable, but I'll give you the first honors there, Andrew. Uh, how did it wind up that you signed up for this particular film on my <laughs> uh, spreadsheet of, uh, you know, of all the options, uh, Tuva Bien, Jean-Luc Godard, Jean-Pierre Gorin, Ziga Vertov? Uh, um, what, what drew you in? Jane Fonda, simply, <laughs> simply sure. Jane Fonda. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, Look, I'm a, I'm a little bit deficient on Goddard's filmography. I, I've mm -hmm. seen a few of his films and enjoyed them from what I've seen, but I grew up loving Jane Fonda's work and loving what she's done. And so years ago when you put out the call out for, for people to join up, I saw that and I was like, I've always wanted to watch that and discuss it. And I'd sure. never seen it before and then put my name down and here we are him being able to talk about it. But yeah, Jane Fonda was my entry point to wanting to explore this particular film. Well, and she's probably been the, the, the star attraction for a lot of viewers uh, because she's had a, an incredible career and what a mm. fascinating person she really is. And I, I also have a lot of admiration for her. I didn't always feel that way back in the 70s when I was a much younger person. I was a little bit sick of Jane Fonda when she was doing stuff like The Electric Horseman with Robert Redford and she was just like kind of all over the place. And you know, we'll, we'll get into analyzing Jane Fonda, I'm sure. There's lots of material for that uh, in these two films films uh derek let's go over your way what was it that drew you to want to talk about uh, this particular film well it um actually for me it was it was goddard and mm -hmm. goddard in general um he was sort of a key figure in the beginnings of my personal cinematic explorations both as a viewer and as a potential filmmaker and it started with contempt and so i was i've been slowly picking away his filmography, but 
I have to admit it's a very complicated relationship because I like I, I like I don't mind his analytical approach and some of the things that kind of that can put people off about some of his films. But um, where we butt heads is political. And uh, so Tavabian is, of course, kind of like this weird amalgamation of what I like about him and also what I don't like about him. Okay. Excellent. Well, I think, uh, you know, we can definitely touch on some of the polarization and some of the alienation that Godard seems very insistent on stirring up as we get into it. So, uh, yeah. and then William, um, you know, I think I, I saw a comment uh, on the spreadsheet. I, I will let you go ahead and share that as you will with the viewers, but talk about your interest in uh, wanting to come on this episode and talk about it with me. What did I say? Well, I think how many years was... how many years ago was this <laughs> it was a while i can click it up a minute but i think there was a, it was a sort of a negative take on the film i'll just put it that way well um, yeah i this is i watched this movie uh when i was in high school maybe about 16 or 17 and with absolutely zero context and okay. maybe i had seen by that point, I had seen something maybe breathless, but okay. Um, I don't know why I, I picked this. Well, I don't so know. So here it is. Okay, what did I say? Date, dated June twelfth, twenty eighteen. So here you are on the record. It says oh. interested semicolon one of my least favorite films ever. <laughs> well, you, you okay. know, I, I, that's actually interesting that we. So there's like a double snapshot here where I I, okay. I said at the time I thought it was the worst thing I had ever seen because yeah. Um, because of, of what I observed as like flat didacticism, but mm-hmm. it, it was interesting as a as a teenager, um, I was very poisoned um, against anything that would show any leftist or socialist viewpoints or show okay. satire of any uh, right wing or centrist viewpoints by a couple mm-hmm. of teachers in high school. And that's because I'm from Long Island. And uh, so yes. um, just being a bit of a parrot, I'm like, ah, this is, this is some, uh, commie fooey. I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going right. on here. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I just, I just despised the direct address and how straightforward it was. And, um, sure. but the thing is, I didn't know what any of this was about. <laughs> and I want to be truthful. Right. I want watched it again for the first time. Um, I definitely never finished it. And, in the three years since I posted my interest in this, I've come to love Jean-Luc Godard through mm-hmm. his other films and to understand him much better and to understand this context better. And uh, I came in and I uh, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed this film. I okay, it's complete I, complete I was, turnaround. But it was it was yeah. I think the turnaround is what made it interesting to me is because yeah. um, it was just like I I had no context and now I have. Um, what is, you know, half of my life of context since. Cool. I was wondering if you just watched so many worse movies than this one over the past three years <laughs> that maybe it no longer ranks. Shot and Tango? <laughs> yes, uh, Son and Tango, that sucks. But um, <laughs> but this this this, 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 I, this, I, this I can get into. This is a nice 90 minutes of happiness. 
Yeah, I I think there's a, a lot to enjoy here, but you definitely got to get on its wavelength, and and that includes you know some some political accommodations, uh, whatever your perspective. Because I think in in many ways, one of the things I appreciate about Tuva Bien, especially coming off of this pretty deep immersion of Godard's late '60s and very early '70s work is that he's kind of an equal opportunity offender here and that every perspective, every political side, uh, both gets a chance to sort of speak its truth, but in the same time is also kind of lampooned and, and shown to be wanting in some area or another. Like nobody's got the full solution. And yet, as the title sort of ironically assures us, everything's just fine. <laughs> so yeah, let me let me kind of give you my take here. I, you know, I, I will not kind of rehash or relitigate uh, the previous two episodes. I, I did those episodes with John Lobinger. Uh, he and I both kind of made this commitment to really immerse ourselves in Godard. And uh, and while I've been a pretty big fan of Godard's, uh, you know, for quite a few years, uh, I approach the Ziga Vertov films in particular with a fair amount of, you know, dread and anxiety because I just heard how didactic and, and boring and, and uh, heavy handed they are in terms of just really forcing this Marxist, Maoist, Leninist, uh, you know, agitprop kind of down the throats of, of would-be viewers and that they don't really engage the audience. And, and uh, you know, it was kind of Godard kind of on this hard leftist doctrinaire tangent that that took him several years to work through. There is some truth to some of that, but at the same time, Godard is still a, a very clever and, and provocative filmmaker who's always doing interesting stuff. So uh, while the Ziga Vertov films don't necessarily engage us in ways that we're used to seeing in film and they're not exactly what you'd call experimental cinema either of the you know brackage or frampton type of thing uh he's he's doing unique stuff that i think kind of comes to fruition here in tufa bien in particular where some of the excesses and extremes of those earlier films has sort of been set aside. There are some accommodations to audiences with, with the employment of recognizable stars and faces, uh, kind of somewhat traditional plot. You know, there's a setup that introduces dramatic conflict and tension, and then you sort of get to see how it plays itself out over the course of the next hour or so. And then of course that, that final tracking shot in the supermarket, which I think is, is pretty brilliant and pretty amazing. And, and, a worthy short film all on its own just to, to watch as a spectacle. So I don't know. Let, let me just ask, have any of you delved into the Z, earlier Ziga Vertov works of Godard at all? Do, do any of you have comments on any of that? Okay. No comment. No And it's because I haven't seen them. So yeah, well, and that's fine. And, and, and I, you know, they have not been easy to find. Um, the yeah. arrow box set is pretty available now, but you've got to decide if you're going to prioritize that over any number of thousands of other box sets that are, you know, available to purchase as well as how you want to spend your time watching movies. I, I really, I benefited from the, from that, that journey, but it's, it's definitely had an effect on me. Some of the, uh, self-critical and analytical uh, questions that Godard and Goren were asking in those films uh, and, and even in like the letter to Jane, you know, what is the role of the intellectual in addressing, you know, the revolution and, and popular cultural and political concerns? 
I, you know, I've taken a lot of those questions to heart and it's really kind of pushed me into this my kind of more introverted phase over the past month or so as I've just been kind of, you know, quieting my activity on social media, really even thinking about what's the purpose of like this podcast and, and the stuff that I'm doing, you know, modest and humble as it is to, you know, engage in dialogue with the larger culture. I don't want to get too meta or too absorbed in my own little stuff, but that is just an effect that watching these films has had on me. Uh, but now I'm kind of ready to flip the switch back into, you know, watching other movies, doing my, uh, my, my blogging, my reviewing, catching up on the new Criterion uh, collection releases, etc. As I emerge from this phase, just as Godard was kind of emerging from his phase of retreat from uh, commercially oriented art films. And there's definitely some some moments in Tuva Bien that I think can sort of serve as Godard's um, confessional. And we'll, we'll get into some of that. So, um, so William, okay, I kind of ended the last little segment with you as far as your, your um, you know, interest in the film. I, I'm glad to see that you've had sort of a turnaround experience from, from hating it to loving it, because I think that's not entirely um, unfamiliar to a lot of people who maybe had that same uh, what is this type of effect? Especially if you come in like Andrew did to, to watch a Jane Fonda movie. I mean, she look she looks a lot like she did in Clute, but this is a different type of thing. <laughs> uh, so, so, William, tell me just a little bit more about the journey that you went through. What is it that kind of drew you into this, into enjoying this film after a revisit a few years later? Do you know I have a sequel to um, Pink Flamingos, which is oh, okay. Yeah. My little anecdote about my dad trying to watch pink flamingos and asking me you're telling me they made the movie bad on purpose and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i was like well this is such an interesting capsule of me at my current age and my kind of interest and what can draw me to a film and, and say like my dad's inability to even come to grips with the fact that something could be made with any amount of like metatextual element and um that's exactly who I was. So I was my dad when I was in high school. So I think <laughs> I, I, I found some I found some like little write ups I did, um, like in high school about Breathless, where I just basically say like, I, "This is so silly. They make the movie bad on purpose, and why don't they just make the shot one shot instead of eight shots?" And like I, like genuinely, as if I have there was some objective quality out th through which like any narrative film is meant to be projected against, which is really silly, because at the same time as I'm saying this, I was certainly interested in experimental types of movies. But I think because, and um, I think uh, I think that you can, you can Grant gets into it slightly, I think because he, um, on a special feature, um, sort of because of the way the various stylizations of his early films strip away, I mean, I, I, I tried to find a little bit of input after we letter to Jane, because I want to get more in Godard's head about what he was into at this time, uh, but all I can ever see is what he said he wore his favorite films like in the mid '60s. After he makes what I what I actually think are my less preferred films of of his, maybe some of the earlier ones. Um, whereas I really connected very recently with La Chinoise, which I saw when it was on movie, and um, I remember in um, French film history in college the teacher said on the first day, everybody tell me, you know, one of your favorite French films. And one of the students said La Chinoise and it got a big reaction out of the teacher. Like, Ooh, that's a toughie. Oh, that's a, or even like that's um, going to combat you when you watch it, or, or that's an offensive and difficult film. And I just thought it was hilarious. I, I, I saw, like you said, the sort of equal opportunity offender element in that film. 
that he could use um, these revolutionary young students um, and activists and sort of satirize them in the same time as exploring what what he was doing. And, and I think in a lot of films, like he does here with Yves Montand, is he's also willing to satirize his past self or really who he was yesterday. Um, I think that the sort of cinema is dead type quotes that happen around this time after weekend and, and into his transition into this Seagull Fairytale group period is actually one of the things that I'm most interested in exploring. And I have that Arrow box set but it is, it is intimidating. It's another set that people would just preface <laughs> by saying, oh, these films are terrible. You can't get anything out of them. And I don't want to consume them in any a shallow way. So I think I, I have to take my time. And I'm glad I'm sort of doing the reverse exploration by going through Tuba BF first, because it is clearly based on um, what I know and, and the special feature on Tuba Bien with Gorin. It is, it's sort of a, um, a culmination of... And like you said, a sort of distillation of, of what was going on there. So in a way, you can almost refract back from it and then get even more uh, out there from this maybe even more palatable, more narrative uh, movie. But so the, the film begins, and I, I, I will tell you the, the opening sequence of writing the checks. Uh, <laughs> in, in one yeah. second, I was won over. I was, it, 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 the, one, I just enjoyed the rhythm of it, which is completely um, superficial, one could say, but if this, this somebody, if this is somebody who's interested in film grammar as much as he is, uh, it's very you know potent that it has a specific rhythm and it's done continuously with 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 one limited exception where the check doesn't quite turn the same speed, but it has like a pulse to it. And yeah, the and, the, the yeah. tearing of the check exactly. that little zip sound, right? So as you see all of the different factors that go into making a film expressed before you, you can associate to dozens and dozens of implications that has for France at the time, for filmmaking at the time, for art at the time, for Godard at the time. There's, there's so much just in that concept alone, particularly uh, how loaded it is that there is, you know, an expensive check for star performers who in a way yeah. are a bit detached from the rest of the film. And Grant says just as much that it's, it's almost less about them than it is about the workers and the people and the extras, he says, like the, the, the communities and individuals that populate it that aren't the celebrity stunt casts. So there's some there's a, a meta element to having these famous people involved that that makes explicitly clear in that opening that this is a, a um, something we can write a check for and will guarantee more viewership or it's something that other films write checks for to guarantee viewership. And what is the... Um, like you said, what is the role of the intellectual in a revolution? This is explained more explicitly in Letter to Jane, but I think even in just the writing of that check, the viewer can already have a full imagination without without even specific context for this era, but you know, you can bring it in. So from that point on, I, I think I was totally in concordance with, with what the film was going to present. Um, and I was shocked at just how much I didn't get it as a kid, but you know, I was an idiot. So what can I say? Well, you're a kid, and and you know, and and this film gets into uh, a whole host of very adult concerns. You know, the the 
you know, the distribution of wealth, uh, you know, collective labor, just the grind of, of working and, and running an enterprise. Um, and well, yeah, you know, you're also a person who's professionally involved in, you know, arranging for productions and, and putting shows together. So I, yeah, I can sort of see how some of that would resonate with you as well. Uh, Andrew, as, as a person who is drawn in by that international star power, <laughs> let's <laughs> go ahead and, and shift the focus there because you're right. This is very widely seen as a Jane Fonda movie, you know, kind of her uh, dabbling, if you will, in avant-garde, uh, you know, uh, radical uh, left-oriented cinema. This is at a time when Jane Fonda was, you know, very, you know, strongly in her uh, activist phase, not just, uh, uh, you know, the, the the politics of the left in a general sense, but, you know, she was very much becoming a feminist icon. Uh, she was very notoriously associated with the anti-war movement in the United States. Uh, you know, we'll definitely get into that with Letter to Jane, but uh, she was also doing, uh, you know, a kind of a live uh, kind of a comedy vaudeville tour uh, all called uh, FTA. And, and there was a film that I actually reviewed earlier this year that captured some of that. So she and, and Donald Sutherland and others, you know, Donald Sutherland, her co-star and, and Clute were traveling around the country and, and, and international uh, American military bases doing kind of anti-war stand-up comedy and, and vaudeville routines to entertain the troops, kind of a counterpoint to Bob Hope and his traditional, you know, pro-military patriotic uh, entertainment travels that he had done, you know, throughout the the latter part of his career. So, so Jane Fonda was definitely a draw. She won the Academy Award for her performance in Clute. She was kind of the hot it girl of the moment, which is probably not even a, a an appropriate way of of saying it. <laughs> but um, that was Jane Fonda's uh, charisma there. So, so Andrew, give me some of your thoughts as a Jane Fonda fan. What did you see when you watched this movie, and, and how did it work for you? maybe on first take and, and then, you know, more recently. Uh, look, I was really impressed by it because of the fact that it feels like, I mean, she is playing a character here, of course, but it feels like she is playing a version of herself. And so comfortably slips into this role, this performance as somebody who is effectively watching this event of a factory going through a really terrible time of having protests and, and you know, uh, taking down the manager and all this kind of stuff and, and just sitting there as kind of the audience seat for what is going on. And at the beginning, you kind of feel like, oh, she's literally just there as set dressing in a way because literally all she's doing is just watching what's going on. But then as the film progresses and we get to see more of who she is as a person, it feels like she is almost commenting on the film itself where she is like, I'm presenting these things, but then it gets rejected and it's not presented, put forward or anything like that. And then she wants to quit. And not so long after that, the film ends. And I find that as a fascinating comparison as to who she is as a person and how she chooses projects as well, because it's clear that certainly throughout that era, I mean, one of the early films that I remember seeing far too young uh, of hers was Coming Home, and that was a film that really set her in my mind. And then I watched Clute again, far too young. I was probably about 13, 14 at the time, but I, I didn't fully grasp what was going on, but I could recognize the power of her as a performer, as an actor, and getting to see how brilliant she was as an actor. And that is what has stuck in my mind throughout all these years and has, has 
had me coming back to her performances. And it's interesting seeing her, I think it was this year or maybe it was last year where she won an award and she was protesting and I think it was against Trump. And it's like, she's still the same person. Nothing has really changed about her. She's This is still an integral part of who she is as a person, this ability to protest, standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. And that's the thing that kind of took me into this film quite a bit um, because I, I find it quite interesting. There is a lot of, uh, you know, this is a very heady film that, that demands that you uh, really approach it in an intellectual manner. And, and that's good. Like I, I don't usually kind of uh, engage with things, you know, on such a deep intellectual manner that, that forces you to really jump down internal rabbit holes. Like you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. David, where it's mm-hmm. like, how do I embrace culture? How do I present what I'm doing as a person? How do I engage with society as a whole? All of those kinds of things. It's great when a film really makes you ask that about yourself. And certainly this makes you ask that about yourself. I find it really interesting as well. The title, of course, is like everything's going to be okay, which to me in Australian translates to she'll be right. And that is uh, something that kind of suggests it's it's a dismissive thing in a lot of ways because it feels a very offhand uh, reaction to what's going on in life. And it's like, I'm not going to actually address what's going on because she'll be right and, you know, time will sort itself out. And that's, to me, kind of what the title suggests. Like, uh, there is all this turmoil and everything going on and decades later nothing has really changed you know people (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's no equality and i guess for me not having experienced much of goddard's work is kind of him asking himself as a filmmaker and i know he's a co-director here but him asking himself as a filmmaker okay what can i do as a filmmaker to help instigate change in the world how how can i reflect what is going on in the world and this feels like the result of that question whether it's effectual or not uh, it's up to the viewer to decide but for me i thought it was pretty pretty impressive yeah and i think you raise a lot of really good points there and you know this is kind of a godard four years on i mean if we if we look at those very first titles may 1968 may 1972 uh, those are, you know, as as all of the texts are, always are in Godard films, very deliberately chosen words. They don't just sort of flop on the screen for for who knows what reason. May 1968 is, you know, in Godard's mind and in the mind of many other people, uh, a date like seven four seventeen seventy six or or uh, you know any number of historical kind of punctuation marks where. A, a thing happened that it was a big deal. It kind of marked a turning point or, or or a launching of a new era. At least that's how it seemed at the time and that's how it felt. Uh, May 68 you know, came after Weekend. It came after La Chinoise, but uh, La Chinoise in particular seemed almost prophetic, a film that came out in, in uh, kind of the fall of 67 about a student-led uprising based on the... Uh, kind of the radical chic of the teachings of Chairman Mao, uh, kind of a third alternative between uh, Soviet bloc-style communism, which was kind of, you know, ossified and kind of becoming very rigid and authoritarian, and the American imperialism that was responsible for the war in Vietnam and many other exploitative uh, kind of colonial types of perspectives that Godard and his crew were also rebelling against. Uh, 
as naive and as, and as kind of foolish as it may seem now, uh, Maoism was seen as kind of an alternative to all of that, a, a fresh approach to uh, left-wing, you know, radical, uh, revolutionary uh, you know, efforts to change society uh, and to, you know, pursue the class war. So as we've got into politics, uh, Derek, I'm going to kind of kick it over to you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, what's, what's your rejoinder to sort of the political uh, aims that Godard's was certainly producing as a, he's now four years on. He's in May of 72. The film actually premiered in April of 72. So, you know, th- th- that sort of uh, symmetry of dates was a little bit forced because they hadn't actually reached that time when the film itself was made. But there was a reflection that the revolution did not pan out as it was advertised. You know, the, the Ziga Vertov films, especially the early, you know, 68, 69 films, really still seem to be fueling the idea that May of 68 was just the warm-up and that the even bigger changes are yet to come. But by, you know, 72, uh, things had settled back into sort of a complacency. The left did not win the subsequent elections. Uh, the class struggle was not you know, imminent. You know, the workers were not uniting with the students to overthrow the bourgeois authorities. Um, so with all that set up, Derek, why, why don't you go ahead and take it off and, and look at some of the, the political angles and, uh, you know, voice some of your own thoughts along that line. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I know, I know for my issues is that, I mean, first and foremost, I'm, I'm not a socialist and I haven't, I, I certainly wasn't a socialist as a teenager and I'm definitely not a socialist now. So if you have issues with the political stances and, uh, and even more fundamentally the assumed premises, uh, you're going to, you're not going to be interested in what is being proposed. Um, I will give both Godard and Gorin credit uh and you mentioned this earlier that everyone does kind of get their due and you and people are allowed to speak for themselves so you at least get a you at least get honest data but uh i still think that the analysis is wrong i mean for mm-hmm. for instance i think my one of my problems with with socialism with marx is that it operates under several assumed premises one of them is that uh, it's institutions that we create that cause the societal problems. You know, if, if we just replaced one system with another system, then everything will every, then everything will be all right. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I think that it runs way deeper. And even if you do make an effort to make a revolution, and and there have been there have been revolutions done around that time, and certainly before that time, that promised a change but hasn't really has really done that you get back to the same problems as you have before i mean um it did it didn't make russia any what happened in 1917 didn't make uh russia any better for a time i mean you had you had just as you had just a as a despotic rule as as you did under the czars well, so, they would say Stalin messed it up, but Lenin was good. But, <laughs> you know? you see, that, that's yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like oh, it's just it's just you know, it, it just it, it it's almost as, it's it's like you're trying to solve the problem, but you're not really you're not really addressing it. And I think right. I think fundamentally, it's like you're not approaching it in the right way. That's that's certainly how I would how I would observe it. So, and this and tough at the end does kind of perpetuate that idea that that it's oh, it's just if if we just replace this system with, if we had a truly democratic government, if we had 
truly a, a collective if the if everyone's united and to make a common interest to fight back against the system but yeah, no, the workers control bad. the means of production and all of that you know all, just, all you that know, and, let, and let the like, workers no, run the factory you, right right yeah it's it's but it's not getting you anywhere really mm -hmm, so it's, mm -hmm. it's almost uh like a, a lost cause or, or a futile cause so mm -hmm. Well, let, let's go over to some of the, the early scenes, and I, I want to let you continue. You know, Derek, you talked about uh, contempt being kind of one of those kind of gateways for you and Godard, and there's some very clear quotes from contempt. I mean, that, that very yes. opening scene. Uh, do you want to just kind of take it from there as we talk about? So, and again, maybe just as a very swift recap, we've talked about the, the labor strife. Uh, at the at this sausage making plant, uh, kind of a food factory, and uh, you've got the 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 a husband Jacques is his name in the character played by Yves Montan. He's a TV director uh, at this point. He's been a Nouvelle Vague screenwriter and filmmaker. Now he's kind of working in more commercial uh, fields because that's where the money is. Got to keep you know, got to keep the income rolling and all of that. Right. Uh, his partner, I'm not sure if he's if she's his wife or just girlfriend. Uh, her name is Suzanne, played by. Jane Fonda. She's a correspondent, kind of a TV reporter, obviously an attractive talking head and a woman who's been dispatched to, you know, cover stories from a sort of a leftist angle. And we learn that later on in the film as she kind of talks about how she's been sort of categorized and pigeonholed as a reporter. But uh, at the beginning, it looks like this is kind of a relationship story. In fact, the original working title for this film was Love Story, which was even then very ironic because they were playing with the formula of kind of a, a an attractive leading couple that would draw the viewers in. Uh, how is their relationship doing? How are they going to bear up under the stress of these, uh, you know, uh, social and political and economic convulsions that are racking French society? Uh, you know, they're kind of they're kind of dismissing all of that, even while they're looking to exploit that formula. But the didn't the love, didn't love from, story actually come out around that time? Because I'm wondering, <laughs> yeah, if love story, right, right. Yeah, it was a it was a huge best selling novel. We were talking about the Eric Siegel novel, and then the uh, Ryan O'Neill, Ali yep. McGraw, yeah. you know, big 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 time movie. So again, they're they're probably riffing off of that a little bit as well. So, but but what did you think about just sort of that opening setup? And and again, the the quotes from Contempt, that kind of "Do you love me?" back and forth <laughs> between man and woman. Well, going going back very very quickly to the uh, yeah. the writing of the checks, I really like I really like that beginning because it really does uh, establish right then and there how a film is made, and you kind of see the the underpinnings and what the components that you need to to put a film together. And in a way, it kind of sets up what the whole film could be is is a kind of visualized brainstorm of how can we how can we make this film, how can we get this message across. So I, th I thought that was, that, I thought that was clever. And this is one of the reasons why I actually like Godard. Um, but with the, uh, the nods to contempt, yes, I picked up on it very, very quickly. Um, there's a, there's a shot of the two of them walking down the park and it's, and it's a voiceover narration where each of them are, are telling each other what they love about each other. And it's very similar to an opening scene in contempt, which as I recall, this was a scene that Godard had to make under the pressure of the producers, particularly uh, Joseph Levine. 
Right. Uh, they they wanted to get more sexy time with Brigitte Bardot. Uh, right. And so she's laying on a bed with her rear end showing, and there's some sort of you know pillow talk going on, you know, including some sort of sexual. Uh, you know, commentary of you know, the body parts that they like about each other and all of that. But it was very gratuitous. And and Godard, even though he's doing what he's contractually mandated to do to, to keep the money and the, the relationship going, uh, he's kind of doing it in this kind of flippant, defiant way. Like, oh, you want to see Brigitte's ass? There it is. Okay. <laughs> but right. then he's putting color filters over it, all of that, right? right. Yeah, it's incredibly detached. And, and the pillow talk is incredibly detached. And it's interesting to that to see that play again here, where love is expressed by loving material things. It's it's not about it's not about deeper qualities. It's it's all about, oh I like I like your mouth. I like your face. I like I like your ass. I like your I like your genitals. It's just it's incredibly detached and clinical. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a it's a checklist. It's a catalog. Exactly, it's yeah. not really. There's no emotion or or real heartfelt feeling to any of it. All right, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, Andrew or William, either one of you guys want to respond to just kind of those earlier scenes, kind of the you know exploring in a kind of detached way this this relationship and the issues that are uh, kind of coming into a to a head between uh, Jacques and Suzanne well if if I if I can go first I I find you know as somebody who hasn't seen contempt who hasn't seen uh, a, a bulk of Godard's work what I found about this interesting what I found most interesting about these early scenes was it feels like all right, we've got all this money to make a film and we told them that we're going to make a romance. So we're going to film a little bit of romance, but what we actually really want to do is this political drama. And so therefore we're going to give them a little bit of the romance and, but how boring is that? Oh, maybe we'll do a relationship drama, but how boring is that? And so we're going to move on <laughs> yeah. to something political. And to me, I came away from this film as, as if they were saying, Basically, if you have the privilege and you have the power and the, the ability to make a film and you use it as something as frivolous as a romance drama or something like that or a romantic comedy or something like that, then you're effectively denying both yourself and the people of the world the truth of what's going in the world. And you're, you're, you're basically making mockery of the platform that is having the privilege to be able to make a film. That was kind of my takeaway from mm -hmm. it, where effectively he's like, if, if I was to only watch one Godard film and watch this one, I would get the impression that this is a filmmaker who is taking his opportunity right now to make sure that he gets his message across about politics and his view about the state of France and the world right there and then across mm -hmm. as best as he can. And it struck. It, it really did strike, strike quite well for me. Uh, and mm -hmm. it made it made me kind of reassess in my mind um, some of the films which I've already seen that that do feel frivolous. It's like you've, mm -hmm. you've got hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars, and you end up making a pointless romantic comedy. Like, I love romantic yeah. comedies, don't get sure. me wrong, but it's mm -hmm. like... It really made me think of the value and the cost of what goes into actually making a movie. And it doesn't always have to be political, but it has to have some kind of heft, some kind of weight, whether it's a, a you know emotional weight or a political weight or maybe just something that makes you feel good. That's what I took away from this, where it's like, you got to have a responsibility to yourself as a filmmaker and yourself as your your audience as well. And he delivers on that to 
you know, as we're talking about having the star power of Jane Fonda there, make sure that people like myself who will go, oh, Jane Fonda's in this film, I got to check it out. And so you go and check it out and you go, well, that's not what I expected, but I enjoyed (laughs) it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it makes me think of like modern day where people expect, you know, they go and see a Ryan Gosling film, they expect crazy, stupid love, and then they end up with Drive. And it's like, Okay, mm-hmm. it's great that these actors are doing something that kind of pushes against their public persona, who they are, you know, built up to as people. And that's what I really like about this a lot. Yeah. Very, very quickly, um, it reminded me of something and, and something that could be that could be very helpful. One of the quotes that Godard has used every now and then, and especially in contempt is um, this is, he attributes this to Andre Bazan. It's actually Michelle Morlot who said this, but he said the cinema substitutes for our gaze, a world more in accordance with our desires. And I think, and that was when I heard that, that was really, really impactful. And, and that, that is sort of, if you were to find one way to encapsulate all of cinema, like what all of cinema is trying to do, that's, that's exactly what that is. So so actually, to add to that point, Tava Bien does kind of satisfy, or at least attempts to satisfy a desire to project onto the screen a world more in accordance with his desire. Like so, this so so yeah, I I I agree with that. I think that's what he's doing. There, so yeah, 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 and that's a really powerful uh, quote there as well. So thank you for bringing that up. It's. It's something which, you know, these are the things which I, I like about embracing films like this because it makes mm-hmm. you reassess what you've already engaged with what you, and what you will go forward and engage with as well. And especially in a manner like I coming at this from an Australian perspective where we don't, we're not really a, a protesting or, you know, uh, striking kind of nation. We do have strikes and stuff, but we've never had something to the extent of, you know, a proposed leader who might change, who might genuinely change the system of how Australia works. And so Mm -hmm. we kind of become a little bit ambivalent, a little bit lazy, a little bit, eh, we shrug our shoulders when it comes to politics. Like, oh, there's those guys over in Canberra that it doesn't matter about them. And it feels like a completely different world when it does actually impact us as people. And so when I get to see something like this, it's like, where's that fire in my country? Where's that fire Mm. where... Mm you know, we want change. We want the better for everybody else or regardless having the so deep belief that, you know, maybe we should follow this cause, whether it's left, right or whatever. Um, you know, obviously not too far right, but it's, it's just something that I wish that we had a little bit more of here. So it's Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. certainly an aspirational film in a lot of ways. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Godard, I mean, he definitely was very, a very engaged intellectual. Um, I I think I mentioned or thought of him as a philosopher of cinema in some ways, not in a rigorous academic sense, but he's always thinking through what is the implication of movie making of movie watching, you know, as a cinema junkie who spent, you know, countless hours throughout the you know 50s and and probably even into the 60s when he started making movies, watching films of every sort. You know, mindless entertainment, uh, respectable quality dramas, you know, avant-garde stuff. Uh, you know, film noir, all the Hollywood classics, all of that. You know, he's he kind of reached a point of saturation and really wanted to kind of burn it down to the foundation and start over. And that's really kind of what you saw happening with films like Le Gay Savoir, uh, the Ziga Vertov films, and now he's kind of coming back into it playing the game once again and you know kind of wanting to 
keep that sort of level of meta awareness in front of his viewers because I think he feels that he has a, a responsibility. He was conscious of his role as a uh, cultural influencer uh, and a, and as a a figure whose opinions were listened to. I mean, he went on speaking tours. He would give lectures. He would make money just traveling to college campuses uh, across North America just to weigh in and give his opinions and spin the word salad that he became so famous for, uh, full of provocative ideas and phrases. Uh, but to what end? I think he had a real crisis of conscience because he could only do so much and yet he couldn't just become complacent and resigned to making entertaining films a la his friend and, you know, eventual somewhat adversary, uh, Francois Truffaut. William, uh, we've thrown a lot of things out there. Let's kind of get some of your thoughts. Uh, where do you want to lead the conversation, whether that's in response uh, to what's been said, or if you want to take it off in some new directions? Yeah, I think everybody's we've covered quite a lot, and I don't need to elaborate too much more on yeah. various things we have here. I think if um, if somebody finds themselves struggling with, um, with the film in the way that I was as well back when, um, what I would recommend too is in addition to like having some, some Godard background here and there of what he had done before, just to get that element. Um, I highly recommend reading Jonathan Rosenbaum on Godard on this film. I know it'll be in the show notes, uh, his write up, uh, in his sort of, uh, Paris journal for this film's release to him. And when he saw it basically when it came out and, he can, and, and certainly uh, seeing him writing in the moment as he's uh, focused on Godard quite a bit uh, over the years, um, seeing him write in the moment, you get a real feel for what this film was approaching at the time it came out. And I was fascinated to see a couple of observations he had. One was that um, he says that before 69, publicity for Godard films was in Cahiers du Cinéma. So you're getting them in the film magazine. But for Tout va bien, it was found on the pages of Le Monde. So in your, one of the biggest newspapers for the country. And to hook a different sort of audience feels to be the goal here, as if the previous Diga Vertov film groups were, and as you say, hard to see now and, and probably not the most widely distributed then, um, that this is a different type of tactic that, uh, can harness elements of those previous films, but in a way that is likely to be seen by more people. There's obviously inherent contradictions in all of this, like there are contradictions in trying to make a film with, with his leanings politically, but that clearly costs the money it costs and requires the sponsorship that it requires. And the way you can take two celebrities and have them enact out a scene um, as if it's a uh, detached imitation of previous love scenes, if they were, say, contempt or even just other love scenes. Um, there's a lot that's broken down in that relationship if you're to take everything very literally. Um, but it's hard to do that considering the mode of the film and considering the fact that the leads both have their direct address moments as well as the other subsets of the factory. Um, it's also important um, to think about Godard, I think, in the context of his contemporaries from the previous decade. And at the time, it seemed 
certainly the case for Rosenbaum, that he was basically the the one person who went hard in 68 that stayed the course. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as if everybody yeah. else didn't continue, you know, further and further down that road. And in the 50 years since, he's only continued um, chasing new things and chasing uh, new ex- ways of expression. Um, and I think that's that's the thing that I've, I've come to really admire about him and why this film means more to me now after having the shallow experience of seeing Breathless and, and not getting it versus now when I've seen his films up through his most recent his films in the 80s and 90s and have a much broader perspective on his journey. And in that, this film stands pretty compellingly as um, an echo of maybe the, the films. I guess some it's almost like there are those various eras, right? And there's the era you spoke about with Jonathan on the first episode of this little trilogy where it's as if a weekend's the end, but then there's also the gay savoir where you have like, Mm -hmm. well then what middle ground does that fall into? Because if you sort of continue to find these marking points and there's certainly like made in USA and two or three things are sort of a unit in themselves. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there are, there's always a great through line. Um, He's a director that I'm sure uh, would be, one of the most compelling to view chronologically, particularly if you were also boning up on uh, all of the context of its day, and yeah. and so this 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 is this is standing, I think, in a very um, unique position as a reflexive look, the first real reflexive look back over that Siga Veritov line um, to radicalize even further. But in a way, this film is is I think less challenging than Le Gay Savoir and maybe potentially some of those other later films too. Um, none of these films is, has been immune from takedowns, you know, and, and, and negative reviews. And I don't think any, I would ever argue anyone into trying to um, find value in it if they find it too off-putting because clearly there's plenty of people whose reviews I read um, have the same take I had when I was in high school and not to say that, that they're having uh, high school, high schoolers takes, but everybody has their own journeys to get to that point. And, um, and a lot of those issues are just simply with the mode and tone of what he's saying. But I found, I find him very humbling and in some ways, and there's a, um, a nice review on Letterboxd from Christian Flem. Uh, if you find my thing, you can fi- click mine. You'll see, I like that review. Where he mentions this, he mentions the fact that I think people will critique the didacticism hard, but that in a way, I, uh, Christian uh, says that he, he's, he's giving the audience uh, far much more credit and assumes much more intelligence from them than maybe people are, are assuming. I, mm-hmm. I think people feel like they're getting talked down to, but if he's going to make such wide swings with a film like this that is a commercial film, um, I think that he's assuming that his audience is going to be there, you know, every step of the way and, and keep up with him. And I think maybe some of his disappointments over his career might also stem from the fact that maybe he didn't feel like uh, those messages got across to as wide a group as he might've thought to make any change. So it's as much a case of what is his position in a revolution as much as anyone else, as he is an intellectual and the way he wrestles with himself and the, the humble nature of that 
in spite of some of his pretensions. And, and the fact that I've, over time I found that he has a lot of inherent comedy, I've, I've found that there were plenty of oh, yeah. laugh lines in Letter to Jane mm-hmm. that were constructed, I think, to have a comedic um, bent to them. Um, and this is, I think, a, a funny film as well. There's plenty oh, of humor really in, 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 yeah. in this. Right. Um, so I, I think that um, if, if, if I've proven anything, it's that uh, he's always worth a second or third or fourth look. And if there's a film of his that didn't appeal to you, but another one did, keep cycling through them. I, I think that all of them <laughs> exactly. are, are worth right, worth right. a rewatch. I, I, I knew I had a breakthrough moment with Contempt, I think probably shortly after I signed up for this. And I went, I got mad because I was like, I hate that I sort of like this. And then when I <laughs> when I rewatched Contempt last yeah. year, I was just it was like, oh, this is one of the greatest things ever. So yeah, it, yeah. it, it can things can adapt and change, you know, and, and uh, so can our opinions. And so did he, you know, some sometimes even just within one year changes into a completely different type of artist and, and voice. Well, yeah, just to sort of follow up very quickly, I think there's just a few interesting things going on with, with Godard. And I think this really is is really key to understanding his work is his films are relentlessly contemporary. They are always like snapshots of what's on his mind and also as a very acute observer of what's happening around him, at least in his sphere of influence, what's, you know, what's going on in society. And, and so if you like sort of understanding uh, and contemplating works of art in their original context and, and how they're interacting and responding to uh, current events and what's happening with the artist as, as the auteur, as the personality who's engaging with reality and culture in a certain way, Godard's films just bring a, a ton of, of enjoyment. It, it, like if you're into that kind of thing, if you're looking for conventional entertainment, he's going to leave you behind and, and that's fine. You know, go for what you're, what, what you're looking for. And also that condescension pretension thing that maybe gets thrown at him a lot. Just realize he's, he's thumbing his nose at the audience, but he's also self-reflective and self-critical and taking himself down a notch as well. And I think that that also comes through now, you, you know, you may not see that right up front. You may think that he sees himself as Mr. Smarty Pants, who's got the right opinions and answers, but yeah, he is very self-critical and that's a, that's another big piece of the, 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 you know, purified versions of Marxism that he was trying to adhere to is that, is that rigorous self analysis and self critique that says, I've got my own blind spots. I've got my own problems too. And I think that's what uh, preserves him from becoming sort of an apologist for leftist authoritarianism, and, and so to me, yeah, that that is those are the redeeming values because yeah, I I've been listening to a lot. I, I read the Communist Manifesto. I listened and read to uh, the the sayings of Chairman Mao. I've listened to the Chinese, you know, the history of China during those years in an audio book, and it's like, yeah, I'm not really down with all that myself. <laughs> you know, I would not want to yeah. live in that society. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not just going to be a, a reflexive. Uh, leftist basher. I mean, I probably lean more to the left politically, uh, just in terms of my, at least given the current choices here in the USA, I think that's a pretty, you know, easy uh, preference, at least from where I sit. Uh, but, you know, I think Godard in many ways transcends that. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been at a, almost an hour now. So let's, let's just talk about some of the, the, the moments of the film that really stand out as maybe favorites, because there's some really incredible you know set pieces and sequences here we've been really kind of doing more of the the 
the big picture analysis, but there are some, like you, you said, William, there's some comedy moments. There are some hilarious bits once you get into the, the tensions that exist between characters. But uh, who'd like to just kind of throw out anything about the movie itself that stands out to you that we can just chat about for a minute? Oh, we're talking about the uh, manager's never-ending quest to take a piss. <laughs> sure, you know exactly. I mean, <laughs> again, here he is. You know, the the guy who's running the factory, setting the rules, uh, allowing you know, how how long are breaks allowed for? When do you have to use a bucket if the production is too intense to let you take a break off the line? I mean, <laughs> he's getting a taste of his own medicine, and it is. It's it's just the most you know crude, silly little slapstick as he's squirming around, and each bathroom is locked, and he's having dialogues with somebody who's who's occupying the uh the toilet and all of that but uh, yeah i mean very gratuitous uh, almost kind of juvenile humor especially for a godard film uh, what do others have to think about that little sequence i really liked it i thought it was it, you know is after a moment of of seriousness like it is it it i think it comes after a you know one of the the dialogues to the camera and it's just this moment of of just like the ultimate humiliation and of course the old, the question that rings through afterwards is how far will they go how far will they go and it's like well how far will he go how yeah. far will he need to go to, to actually and i gotta have... go i gotta go <laughs> i gotta break this window i don't care who's, yeah. who's outside <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah who's on the receiving end of that little stream right <laughs> <laughs> and of course, and then the, and then the kind of the 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 workers just kind of watching him. And I mean, the, the the whole setup is is kind of just preposterous. These these workers throw a wildcat strike against the orders of their union bosses, so they are you know in, in double rebellion. They're they're not only overthrowing the management, but they're also overthrowing their own shop stewards who are wanting to you know. Uh, coordinate their their labor strife a little bit more conventionally and these guys they just rise up they they you know hold the boss hostage but they really have no idea what they're doing or what they're looking (laughs) to accomplish by it it's just like they're mad as hell they can't take it anymore to to kind of jump forward to to network and and uh you know several years later uh but yeah and and yeah so it it is it's just kind of like this ludicrous little eruption uh that really does not have any kind of a plan, but is trying to make some kind of a statement on its own terms. Mm. Yeah. How about the, uh, the dollhouse set there? Uh, just that whole sequence, the, the tracking shots showing the different uh, parties kind of in their own little uh, cubicles, so to speak. You know, you've got the boss trapped in his office. You've got the workers in their bloodstained smocks standing guard to make sure he doesn't get away. You've got the the, the women uh, kind of uh, even showing within the the ranks of the workforce uh, different hierarchies of sexism and age and and the little you know petty tensions that exist within the group. You know the woman who's getting criticized by her husband on the phone because she's showing solidarity with her colleagues rather than coming home and making dinner and expecting him to to take care of the domestic duties at least for one night. He can't handle that. You know it's just kind of like yeah. So there even in this. Uh, you know, would be workers' utopia. There are there are uh, issues of sexism and and uh, you know chauvinism and all of that. And and certainly feminism was kind of a new uh, ingredient, uh, even for the the left. You know, uh, 
leftism and and the you know the you know the Marxist and, and Maoist revolutions were in many cases still very male dominated enterprises, and there were still a lot of assumptions about uh, the roles of women, and we even talked about that in our previous episodes with Godard's. Um, relationships with the women in his life uh, that uh, you know his marriage to Anna Karina which had already fallen apart uh his his um second marriage to Anna Zemsky who appears briefly in this film maybe I'll talk about her in a little bit uh and and the role that she had of course she's best known for being the female lead in Robert Bresson's O Hazard Balthazar uh, she married Godard when she was still like only 19 years old, I believe, or maybe that's when they started dating. Maybe she was 20 or 21 when they actually got married. But, you know, he was almost twice her age at that time. And so, you know, Godard has his own issues with how he treats women and, and how he assesses their role and their contributions to his work and his partnership with them as a as a as a as a spouse or as a creative uh you know counterpart all of that so there's a lot of personal growth there's a lot of uh questioning of of traditional assumptions of 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 how people rank and and relate and connect with each other uh that that little dollhouse thing to kind of get back to that i think sort of symbolizes how kind of closed off and pigeonholed so many people are even in the midst of this kind of you know presumed chaos of of a of a, a spontaneous workers uprising but i just thought that was a pretty cool set and and uh the visuals just kind of created some very interesting um you know optics it's it is a really exciting set because it it takes something that could be rather dull into something that is visually exciting and visually draws you in and that motif of the the camera swinging back and forth which obviously we see again later on in the supermarket is really really quite impressive and it keeps the visual style of the film as i was saying very engaging i also like the um i don't know if this is intentional or not but the the cheekiness of having it be a sausage factory after the oh, opening yeah. which is like <laughs> sure. you know <laughs> quite literally having is showing us how the sausage is made and then it's like here's here's the place where the sausage is made and it's like that in itself was quite amusing too um but the the set design is just brilliant and it's so it just kind of shows a holistic approach to the actual uh, the factory itself and it makes you consider each particular part of it as it's going on rather than cutting from room to room or person to person it is seeing everything completely and makes you consider that oh geez you know the manager is right there and yet he's not really paying attention to what is actually going on in his own workplace and that then itself is really fascinating too but that's what I really liked and I think that it's quite interesting how the set is actually used and particularly in a moment that kind of stands out for me is the commercial sequence where, you know, this, this dark set of these women getting their, their legs shot for a commercial. And I found it really interesting how it's like, there's this talk of how, well, Vietnam is still going on right now. And yet we're standing here singing and dancing and selling things like nothing matters at all. And it's this brief look of like, you know, the, the world continues moving no matter how much turmoil is going on elsewhere in the world, whether it's, you know, France's involvement, America's involvement, no matter whose involvement, we just kind of keep on moving and are forced to do that because it's what we have to do. But when you sit there and consider it, it, 
gets a little bit depressing, <laughs> you know? Well, well, absolutely. And and it's not just the fact that life goes on and that, you know, commercial enterprise continues, but it's just how idiotic and banal the whole thing yeah. is. You know, this, this, this little jingle, these girls and their, you know, bright red and green tights and, and just the kind of silliness of it. It's, it's a very aggressive dumbing down for the sake of, you know, keeping the economic juggernaut rolling along. But then and, the ultimate yeah. joke is there as well, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, that he says, oh, there's more honesty in commercials. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, and again, that's that's where you've got this continual crossing over of, of critique where, you know, he's pointing out the absurdity of it, but then also the, the candor, you know, that, that in some ways these, these commercials speak more honestly about where our heads are really at than a more refined, uh, you know, presumably noble aspirational type of, uh, cultural commentary. I mean, he, he's kind of getting down to brass tacks and an interesting trivia bit is that Godard himself did do a, a Schick razor commercial himself to, to make some money. And that it, it's actually a short little, uh, supplement on that Godard and Goren box set, uh, in this, in this movie in Tuva Bien, it's a Remington commercial, which was kind of a competitor of Schick. But I mean, this is Godard again, sort of taking the piss out of himself and the fact that he himself made that move. He, he needed to generate a paycheck. And again, um, during this phase, uh, really all through Godard's career, there was that, that kind of hustle element where he was having to secure financing. Sometimes he made movies so that other producers could get money to, to keep the wolf off their door because they had debts and by bankrolling another movie, they could at least postpone the the due dates on some of their collections. So there's absolutely this kind of one step ahead, uh, you know, of, of, of the law or, or of the creditors. Uh, that's, that's part of the whole filmmaking industry. And I think it also can, um, lent itself to some of Godard's burnout when he was making, you know, his, uh, his art films and needed to step out of that scene just to do something that, you know, kind of eased the pressure on himself just a little bit. Um, yeah, back to the sausage making. I mean, the fact that, you know, you've, you've got, uh, Yves Montan and Jane Fonda each, at least, you know, filming portions of doing the labor themselves. They're in the right. cutting rooms and in the, you know, casings and, and in the sweat and grime and, and blood and, and guts of it all. Um, you know, <laughs> um, the fact that they're dealing with a, what is a pretty brutal industry, it, it is one of those necessary things in some ways to, to feed the people and, 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 and keep our bellies full. But what a nasty business it is having to actually go through all of that slaughter to, you know, uh, fill the supermarket shelves. Yeah, actually, um, that kind of reminds me of the 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 long takes like uh, where people are talking to the camera and kind of giving their positions. I mean, it, it, it shows another key figure in Godard's development. Uh, we, we talked, we, we touched a little bit on Bertolt Breck and, and the, how his rex, reflexivity and meta commentary definitely informs a lot of his films, but another key figure is uh, Jean Roche. And uh, you know, I think Godard kind of fancied himself as a, as a kind of, uh, cinema anthropolo anthropo anthropologist as well, and, and just kind of looking at what people are doing, and uh, so in that yeah, case, you're kind yeah. of seeing you're kind of, you're seeing you're seeing them on their own terms. You're seeing what they do, and and you're seeing for yourself uh, what is happening, which is 
related to another thing that I, I, I do like about Godard and I find fascinating is that he made two separate statements that when joined together sort of illustrates the paradox of cinema where he's, fam he's famously said uh, cinema is truth photographed 24 times a second. And then the other statement is every edit is a lie. And so, and I think about that because it's, it's kind of like, where's the truth and where's the lie? And, and I think in the long takes, it's probably the most, it's certainly the most truthful because, you know, you're, you're allowed to see them on their terms. Whether you agree with them or not is, I mean, is up to debate, but at least you're, you're seeing that right there. But then the juxtaposition of editing, it kind of makes you think, well, <laughs> is, you know, where's, uh, is this really truthful or not, or is or so on? So, but I think to his credit, I, th I think the edits are done very sparingly, and I think it's to make the point that I'm just I just want to put as much data as possible. I'm not really trying to, and I think this even gets into the beginning of Letter to Jane a bit, where we're we're it's not so much providing an answer; it's just we're trying to provide something to ask more questions. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think Godard is is you know continually trying to present to his audience this is what's happening, this is what's real. What do you think about that? You know, and whether it's the social, economic, political issues, or just the, you know the, you know the 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 crud and the glitter that that yeah. that we occupy ourselves with, our fascination for uh, trivialities and and uh, kind of shallow content uh, when there are you know more important or more substantial things that we could be directing our attention to. Uh, he's not, again, I don't think he's doing that from this point of condescension, just, you know, dismissing the, the bulk no. of humanity because uh, he sees himself in it as well, but it's still a very critical statement and it is something that can be, you know, fairly offensive to uh, many viewers who are just not really in a mood to get called out <laughs> for some of our right. our uh, shallowness or our, our kind of uh, triviality just in terms of how we choose to spend our time or what we prioritize. And he certainly will be offensive to those who maybe buy in wholeheartedly to things like uh, you know conventional patriotism or uh, any number of kind of what you might just lump together as traditional values he, he'll say you know you're being just kind of hoodwinked by the uh, the bourgeoisie uh, think for yourself and, and break out of the mold a little bit so um, yeah William any any bits of the film that you want to kind of draw our attention to as we kind of maybe start working our way towards wrap up on Tuva Bien? I think we've covered almost all of it. I think uh, the wonder of those tracking shots and the lack of the edits within them. And these these are not new to Godard, certainly. No, right, um, no. But the 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 way of just going back and forth and back and forth, seemingly unendingly. Um, at a purely aesthetic level, I, I find it enjoyable because it's a unique gesture it's a unique way to express space it's a unique way for us to be able to like we were in real life contextualize you know the whole thing it's 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 the the, the reason why uh, a long take like that um means more to me than a long take i mean this this is, this is a very uh, arbitrary comparison but i i always have to think about um goodfellas because <laughs> not that, not that this guy has anything to do with Goodfellas, 
but I'm just tired of like film bros talking about how good the tracking shot and Goodfellas is when yeah. to me the the exciting thing, the, the really beautiful and exciting thing is not the achieve that sort of technical achievement there. It's the how you can move the to, camera through all these different. Yeah. And then, and then you see this guy right. talk and you see that guy talk and then, right, you know, and then right. the boogie nights rips it off and it's just the same shot and who cares? Like, <laughs> I like like the, like the, a, be, a better long take is I could go on singing Judy Garland and Dirk Bogart acting for six minutes is a better long take or or to that point Gertrude you know as a film but um, that energy that gets in your body when you just haven't been able to blink right and the fact that that's a huge distance you go back and forth in that supermarket yeah. and you yeah. you. It's like, a big supermarket. <laughs> huge. It's huge. And, and it's got, I mean, it's in, the, in the classic European style, it's got clothes and everything. It's like the entire. It's a hy- actually, technically, it's a hypermarket because it has because it has clothes. There we are. Thank you for that. I didn't know that was a term. Yeah. So this, <laughs> so our hypermarket. Ah, better. Yeah, and supermarket. It's a hypermarket. Yeah. Hypermarket. <laughs> so you, you, you as a, I mean, I love that kind of shot always. I love being able to. Because the, the, the thing that's so wonderful is it's not in 360. You are forced to just see what's in the frame. But your mind can keep track of what was left and right. And it almost reminds me of, of, of the kind of shots where, and I guess these don't happen super often. Um, I could think of maybe like uh, traveling players as an example, but like where a long take has transitions in it that aren't cuts, as if as if there are jumps in time we don't see. And the structure of that is just the, I'm assuming that they didn't have much time to rehearse this, but that there are set moments that have to happen at certain times. How I, There's a sort of, by the, the clothing area, there's like a, 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 a battle that ends up being waged. And I love the um, sort of riot squad there that they, they you can see the acting in their blows because they're not very committed to like it's it's not that intense because their arms are moving quite slowly and they're not making any contact, but it's as if that is a totally different world than what we've seen before and elsewhere. And there's so much going on, and and it it culminates and culminates for the viewer. And the thing that to me is the most interesting thing about that kind of long take is eventually when it ends, whether or not that. I mean, there are plenty of shots I will like find. I'll, if I'm watching an old musical, uh, my example here is Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe and the Harvey Girls, where Judy Garland gets off the train and there's a huge tracking shot in this musical number. And I just kept watching it going, don't end, don't end, don't end, don't end, don't end. How much of this can you can you just fit in one beautiful, uh, uninterrupted moment that is so tactile in that way? And eventually when it cuts, the release in the body is so so unique. And whether or not it's like it cuts too soon or it cuts too late. But by that point, you can't expect a cut. It's, it's, you, that, that shot could go on indefinitely. So that intense hypnotism happens also earlier in the dollhouse with the uh, workers singing their song, which also has lulls where you're like, is that going to be it? And then it comes back in again. And you just don't quite know. I mean, if there's one ultimate way to do this, it's, it's to watch either Jean Dielman or, um, or News from Home or, or a Chantal Ackerman film where those those long takes, 
when they finally end, I almost feel like I'm bereft of a friend because it's like, I, I just got so used to that universe in, in whatever it had in it. Um, and I find that's a much more powerful thing to be left with than, than maybe something that was um, flashy camera wise, or uh, in terms of uh, like getting the sound to all work. Oh, this, this is, this is pretty simply theater with a perspective being given to us. This is so much easier to film in some ways. I mean, that's the utility of, of, of long takes sometimes is that you can shoot the film more simply. I mean, how many shots are in Gertrude? I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty uh, svelte uh, distribution. And, and this set piece moment, I mean, it, it, it earns its climactic spot, I think. And uh, as you say, it's as a mini film, it's, it's something else. That's that's definitely my that's definitely my favorite scene the the, the hypermarket tracking shot because the way I see it is for all the things that you just said that it does give you the sense of space and such but it really does in a way it kind of encapsulates what the film is illustrating and which which also I think is kind of an allegory of what's what was happening in France from the sixties into the seventies this kind of a uh, big industrial machine that's has some phrase and such and like for a, at a certain moment the camera stops and you see the you see the guy the running of the selling the uh manifesto of the french communist party for 75 francs and then right right it's another commodity with, it's just another item merchandise to be it's owned. another commodity right. you also right. see, you also see the the generational difference because the 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 guy selling it is very much of the 20s and 30s and kind of approaching it that way and yet you have all of these young students including Anna Rzymski is in the crowd you know they're they're coming at it from being students at the universities in Paris and right. Right. so they're asking they're trying all to those impertinent idealistic questions and you know why are you selling this and, you know just kind of that whole disruptive student thing just wanted to throw that in there go go ahead Derek it's like no, no that, but but that's that's what I like about it it's, it's like it's it's in that one shot it's it says everything that uh I don't know it, it just yeah in that one moment it just has everything that the the film is is trying to do I think I think that's kind of mm. brilliant and and yeah it could very much be a film onto itself you, you don't need the rest of it and, and not to say that the rest of it is bad it's just it's just that you know, this is like really, really good. So well, and and unlike some of the other Ziga Vertov films, it brings Tuva Bien to sort of a climax. Like the the Ziga Vertov films, uh, several of them just kind of it's almost like they just ran out of film or they just kind of stop. I mean, there are conclusions. British Sounds is probably the best of them. That's the consensus that John and I uh, came to because it, it it actually opens with a big factory tracking shot and each segment sort of has its own piece and it ends with kind of this symbolic fist punching through the Union Jack and all of that. So it kind of delivers that payoff. And I think Tuva Bien kind of does the same thing. The other films really often just sort of seem to run out of steam. I mean, they, they may end on a rhetorical flourish of some sort or another, but they just kind of run and then they're done. Uh, this here feels like, you know, there was a setup there was the dr dramatic tension of sorts. There were the comedy moments. And then there was kind of the grand finale uh, with that little epilogue of kind of the, the more tracking shots of junky vacant alleys in France. And, you know, um, 
all of that uh, with the little pop jingle uh, as the kind of ironic accompanying soundtrack. One thing I do want to point out here, we've been talking a lot about Godard and giving him a lot of credit, but really Jean-Pierre Guerin is is kind of uh, yeah. the primary filmmaker responsible for the actual execution of, of Tu Va Bien. Uh, Godard was in a very... A nearly fatal motorcycle accident in June of 71, just as he was going to head to the USA to sign a contract with Paramount to, to, uh, to make the film because Paramount got into this as a, as a, uh, as a funding partner. Uh, they didn't end up having, having anything to do with it, uh, other than, you know, perhaps some early production stuff, but they didn't distribute it. Eventually, uh, Gaumont took over, but Godard was laid up in the hospital for almost the entirety of the shoot and had a long road of recovery. Uh, he, you know, he, like I say, very nearly died, got a skull fracture, you know, lost blood, uh, you know, he he was pretty messed up, and thankfully his life was spared, and he was able to to bounce back. But Jean Pierre Guerin, who really was a very much an apprentice filmmaker, was really more of a political activist who wanted to learn how to make movies to advance his own uh, kind of ambitions to 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 shape the culture and 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 contribute to the revolution. Uh, he partnered with Godard. They had lots and lots of conversations over the years. And then Gorant, much to his credit, was able to step up and do things that uh, he and Godard had planned on. Uh, and so a lot of those scenes that we were talking about really are almost Gorant's homage to Godard or doing at what JLG would, you know, <laughs> what JLG would do, you know, um, in his place. And so it is easy because Gorant's career doesn't generate the same kind of mythic reputation that Godard has, and very deservedly so. Guerin made some interesting films. There's an Eclipse series set uh, that gathers three of them, and uh, they're, they're, they're very fascinating sort of documentaries, reality-based films, looking at different slices of, of American society since Guerin eventually relocated to the USA and became a university professor in Southern California. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't have a ton more to say about Garin. I don't know if any of you guys do, but I certainly thought it, it needs to be pointed out that Jean-Pierre Garin was the really the guy behind the camera for pretty much every film scene that we see happening in Tuva Bien. All right, so let's go ahead and just kind of call it there. Let's let's switch over to letter to Jane. Uh, if anybody wants to overrule me because there's one last thought that they didn't get out. Oh yeah, uh, yes, I overrule. Yeah. There's a okay. Uh, <laughs> the um the the union. This is a functioning people's democracy. So go ahead, <laughs> you have the floor. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The the union guys that that have their monologue yeah. after the, the the factory exec, um, yeah. the one on the right with the hat. I love him. He's got that hat. Remember that guy? So the guy in the center is reading from his notes of percentages. Yeah, okay, and then there's right, the guy yep. on the right, and he's, he's got a great hat. That's it. That's all I yeah. have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are some interesting things happening in the back. I mean, there are there is some visual sophistication. Even some of the scenes where they're talking to, like, the women workers and giving that, that kind of uh, redheaded woman kind of the freckles and the bright red lipstick. And there's Jane Fonda sort of standing in the background in soft focus just as an observer, really just as an extra. Uh, but I, I, I thought that was kind of cool 
cool too just kind of giving the, the the women's plate a little front and center so yeah you're right there's there there's a there's a lot i mean that feels very basic very simple filmmaking uh those extended tracking shots also give you lots of screen time you can pad the length of a film by just putting together this bravura tracking shot but there's content there as well i don't think it was just a gratuitous indulgence as sometimes those long tracking shots can begin to feel um okay cool um one last i just want to add one one more thing as well to that uh now that was mentioned that it's just uh that those tracking shots also have like these micro narratives in them as well like Mm -hmm, there's this mm -hmm, small motif near the end of it uh in in the uh, the hypermarket sequence where you, you know there's police officers who are trying to capture somebody and then one of the police officers is taking clothes off the racks like ah they're stealing stuff, so I may as well join and yeah, do that help too. it myself, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then, what I love about that sequence too is that, of course, in the foreground is we've got the actual checkout people who are doing all the work, and the look of ambivalence on their faces, like, what are these people going on about? Whereas the whole point of them being there is, you know, workers' rights and equality, and we're all equal, and all this kind of stuff, and the workers are like, you are disrupting my day. And, you know, I kind of wish that you all would just disappear. I just got to get these items checked out and then I can go home and not worry about it. Those kinds of micro narratives are what I'm really looking forward to rewatching this film again uh, in a couple of years time and, and revisiting it with fresh eyes and seeing those too. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is definitely a film that's worthy of, of the revisit and of deepening your familiarity with the context of so the, the, the debates that were going on and what, what Godard was up to and, and even maybe just getting a little bit more familiar with the work of Jean-Pierre Garin as well, uh, an interesting guy to say the least. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and then formally switch over to a letter to Jane. Uh, as I kind of said at the beginning, it's kind of a, an accompaniment piece. Um, it's an analysis, primarily an analysis of a of, of somewhat famous photograph that uh, was published in a, a French newspaper and also around the world um, when Fonda was, you know, creating headlines and also generating controversy for her visit to North Vietnam. This was behind enemy lines uh, as far as the U.S. Uh, military and, and U.S. press and politics was concerned. Uh, she got dubbed the the uh, nickname Hanoi Jane because there she was uh, openly consorting with the enemy and drawing sympathetic attention to the cause of this uh, of this militia this this uh, military force that was actively engaged in taking the lives of American soldiers. So you know, depending on your your political stance or just your sense of of duty and honor. What she did was disgraceful and, and uh, you know, uh, unacceptable. Or the other argument is that she's bringing attention to the real suffering that was being inflicted upon the Vietnamese people due to the aggressive uh, you know, American imperialist uh, effort to counteract communist influences in Southeast Asia. So, you know, right there in the heart of controversy, and there's this photograph of Jane Fonda, a pensive look on her face, uh, again, with her clute, you know, fashionable haircut. Uh, there's a crowd of people sort of in the background there, one particular face in general that's focused on. And then she's looking at somebody who is wearing a hat and their back is to the camera. And the expression is just one of concern as she is 
hearing about the, you know, presumably about the the suffering and hardship uh, that are being experienced by the, you know, working class peasants and and humble salt of the earth folks there in Vietnam. Um, you know, who who wants to kind of offer their first take on on the response to the film? It's less than an hour long. It's the, the soundtrack is basically just Godard and Garin kind of reading from what, what seems like a prepared text. And there are some interpolations of other f- pictures of Jane Fonda, other scenes of, of atrocities in the war and just other stuff in general, but it's primarily a lot of screen time is that particular photograph uh, up close and, and uh, you know, under the microscope, so to speak. Uh, who wants to kind of pick it up from there? I'll let anybody jump right in. I think it's a um, really funny film. <laughs> I, 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 could, I was yeah. shocked at how much I laughed because um, they like the, the, there's so many weird little details. This is almost the most incomprehensible text because there, there are complete sentences that I feel like I would have to listen one at a time six times in a row to see if I can understand what was being said. Um, mm-hmm. which I, which I think and this is, is being said in English too. This isn't like a translation from the French. This is right. all spoken in English, right? Uh, it's in English and it's, um, but it's, but, it, but because of the, uh, the humor in it, I mean, I always felt like Godard obviously has, you, you could superficially compare him to the modern day edgelord or troll in some ways. And the way mm-hmm. that he would rub rub against society or do things, you know, in order to, to achieve those sorts of responses and sometimes even play up something. Um, and I think this, this is a film where, I don't know, I think that, that, that kind of playful energy is, uh, is at full play. If I, I feel like some of this text is convoluted on purpose um, in order to, to kind of weave in even more, compelling web uh, but there were certain things that that struck me um, certainly everybody loves when they call Bertolt Brecht Uncle Bertolt which is great because it, <laughs> right. it, it, it's this establishes itself as not a, like a stuffy academic appraisal it's, it's it still asserts itself within the context of these particular artists personality and it's sort of the final film of this Siga Fertov experience which is actually what that's what Garan calls it in his little supplement the Ziga Vertov experience, which sounds like a great band. And uh, <laughs> yeah. there was a couple other things like, well, first of all, too, I love to um, to finally hear somebody else talk about Jane Fonda's resemblance to her father and to actually mm. then integrate that into into it in, in, a, in a way that uh, I, I, I thought was pretty compelling, which leads to um, what I thought was the most darkly comic moment uh, which is when they they talk about her pensive face, and that it is Cartesian because it's showing that she thinks, therefore she is, and then draws a line to Rodin or draws a line to the thinker, and then superimposes the thinker in front of war atrocities. It's like how how would these images have been improved if if they had this kind of like contemplative, objective viewpoint that's going hmm, very interesting. And I think like the way that that tore at the artificiality and performative nature of the of the photo i think in a way is, is a justifiable um critique it's a, it's a it's a it's a valid way to appraise what a lot of people probably felt i don't think anybody would would doubt though that jane fonda was 
representing the real deal and her truth. It's it's in a way, whether it's artificial or not, I think it's certainly the message she wanted to convey in, in this sort of staged event, like anything is going to feel that way. But, you know, she is the real deal, right? We, we all we all can sort of agree there. And they they do spend some time sort of critiquing her and, and bringing her down a peg. But there's also other weird details like for, for um, the uh, the the way that they'll, they'll go on a tangent that's then a tangent, then a tangent will then seem mm. arbitrary, but there's always context and meaning. They, they draw a line to John Wayne and then mention um, also for either young Mr. Lincoln, where they mentioned Henry Fond or, or with John Wayne films, they, John Ford is mentioned and seemingly apropos of nothing mentioned that he would become uh, a naval admiral. But that when you think about, I mean, the, the implications there of the performative nature of let's let's say generically speaking like a pro-military right-wing um hollywood entity where we're where in our era world war ii where like joining the fight is, is such a different thing than joining the fight in a performative way would be today if like you wouldn't have damien chazelle join the army in order to <laughs> to to show yeah. something i mean it's just not not it's, it's a different world when you're going to be put in that place and as a comparison point in war like, what if instead of, you know, joining the war in Vietnam uh, as a celebrity, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know for a fact, I'm assuming there isn't any celebrity who enlisted to join the fight in Vietnam in the way that celebrities could then become um, commanders of, of ships in did, World War II. Did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for lead role in a cage? Ah, hey, there's, there's that. Well, you know, that's going to be coming to criteria and we all know. Um, of course, it's already there through, we're gonna, through we're, boyhood. We're gonna we're gonna we're, we're gonna have uh, the live at Pompeii's coming up. I, I heard for, for there we okay. go. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's 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 got weight to it, even if it feels just like like a footnote padding. Like any, by the way, he's gonna do this, but you can you can see even the the difference in um, how an American uh, actor or Hollywood celebrity would would relate to the war. Uh, very much differently than 20 years, 30 years earlier. Um, it's uh, it's it's all very loaded. And then there are times where it's just, you know, obfuscation upon itself. And I know this is a, a film I will enjoy rewatching uh, many times over because it's hard to, to hear this much dense text delivered pretty much consistently with little breaks and feel like you're following the whole thread. Uh, but I was struck my first... It, first take was like i'm gonna let smooth just wash over me but then i was drawn very much to the the barbs whenever i really saw them you know get um quite dryly and succinctly uh thrown cool excellent i mean I, I, yeah i you know it is a it's a film that i've had varying responses to i've 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 admired it i've appreciated it. there's been times when it kind of grates on me uh, andrew i want to ask for your your take uh, as a as a jane fonda fan as somebody who was brought <laughs> in uh how do you feel she was treated here and and how do you feel the her portrayal or their analysis of of her uh appearance in this photo how does that affect you as somebody who appreciates her work I, look, I, th- I, f- I felt that it was fair and it's, it was due because in a lot of ways we see these celebrities, uh, whether it's Jane Fonda, whether it's Angelina Jolie, for example, who all engage in this kind of acti- activism. They're going out into foreign countries and talking to people and there's a that aspect of 
the privilege because of their celebrity that they're able to go to certain places and do these certain things. And and they're and they're protected. There's bodyguards. I'm exactly. sure there's security. The cameras are right there in place so that this moment isn't wasted. And boy, if you think you think they had a hard time with it in, in Letter to Jane in, in this era, what about social media today and how oh, yeah. that whole mm, impulse yeah. has just been exploded by, with performative activism and all of that. Yeah. 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 And and that's the thing which I think is really interesting. It is a great digestation or digest what that's not even a word, but you're digesting what is going on on you know, with celebrities as a whole. And certainly for a war that went on for 20 years, you know, there is going to be some kind of impact of the social media, the, 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 you know, the, the celebrity of the era who are getting involved in this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I think that that particular digestion of it is really fascinating. And especially for me as somebody who, uh, you know, I wasn't around during the Vietnam war, but I find one of the discussion points in the film is talking about kind of how celebrities use their fame in a way to bring these issues to people's attention who might not be aware of it. And for that regard, I think that there is both a criticism and a celebration of that because people who might not know about the impact of what's going on on, you know, in inverted commas, the enemy of the Vietnam War. And effectively, I think that that is really the the most important part for me to take away from this is to recognize that, sure, these celebrities get involved in all these kinds of things and they do it with um, all different manners of reasons, you know, whether they, they're yeah. doing it to uh, boost their ego or for genuine concern of what's going on. Um, but their, their end goal is always to enlighten the world about what is actually going on in these parts of the world. And that's kind of important. But this is a dense thing. And as Will was saying, like it's something that, you know, it demands revisiting because of the fact that it is so heavy with what's being said. I actually kind of probably would prefer to listen to it as a podcast. I don't. Yeah, it really that, feels like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> podcast with some visual accompaniment, right? Yeah. I don't know. Like the visuals are important. They're useful, but then it mm-hmm. fades to black quite a lot and it's yeah. just them talking. And it's like, at those points, I'm like, I just want the audio because then I can at least focus solely on the audio at itself. And that's something I'm, you know, might do in the future, just switch off my screen and listen to the whole thing because there are a lot of salient points here. But it's also very funny, and a lot of it comes from you know the the comedy of how certain words are, are enunciated and reinforced and things like that, like Uncle Brecht and the way that they swear as well, and the emphasis on the different syllables in that is is just <laughs> you know yeah. there's some words in there where I'm like I'm going to take this away and just remember how they say this particular word because it, I've not heard it ever said this way before and it, it makes for a very entertaining <laughs> experience yeah yeah, yeah. I, I like photograph <laughs> photograph <laughs> was my favorite <laughs> Yeah, another way of, of absorbing this uh, film would be as a text. And I actually did find a link um, in my kind of research that claims to be a transcript of letter to or dear, you know, of letter to Jane. And and uh, at the same time, it's not an accurate uh, transcription because, as I said, the film is spoken in English, but this it's it's a Google. Uh, 
chat or Google Docs type of thing that <laughs> that that I found. Uh, somebody was asking, "Is there a transcript?" And so somebody offered it as a response to this kind of group, um, you know, user group type of thing that that was set up some years ago. And it's got like the times for each quote from the movie. So what it looks like, it looks like it's a um, kind of a subtitle text, but it's written in English. But it feels almost like the the English was translated into French and then retranslated back into English and it's it's very convoluted. I don't know how this thing came to yeah. be because when you listen to it and you read it, they don't align at all. Sometimes it's it's actually pretty dramatically different. I was I was going to say that you could take you could take this one step further. You 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 try to transcribe the English, then translate it to French, then translate it to Vietnamese, then translate it back uh, yeah. to Chinese, then yeah. Russian, and then back to English. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and see what the comes whole, out. <laughs> the whole Cold War. Uh, grand tour there you know so but that's just another way because you're right there is there is so much here and that that is absolutely why this was a prepared text that that uh jean-pierre and jean-luc took turns reading from um does anybody feel like there was a a a tone of of any misogyny here i mean do you think that if uh it had not been this uh young attractive celebrity woman but maybe it was a guy or somebody who just didn't have uh, the the reputation. I mean, l- let's talk about Jane Fonda, uh, who she was prior to this film. I mean, she was known as as one of those proverbial sex kittens, you know, in films like Barbarella, and and she you was know, she she's a beautiful woman, sexy, and all of that. Uh, but she was emerging out of that with a kind of a again, I think, a very sincere interest in feminism and even questioning some of her own decisions and how she was cast and how she presented herself in the past. And, um, you know, I think she took some pretty brave uh, routes uh, in making a film like Clute, you know. Um, Again, some people don't know that she was the right person for that role, but she did win an award. She she raised a lot of awareness. uh, And I think, you know, she was very sincere in in wanting to do the right thing. she understood her celebrity status. She understood her family lineage. I mean, her brother, Peter Fonda, was also a pretty significant figure in his role in Easy Rider and other films that he was making around this time. So so they were a very active family, and and uh, you know, she's got her own complicated personal history. Her, her mother committed suicide, and you know, just all kinds of stuff that went into making Jane Fonda who she is. And yet she kind of gets raked over the coals, at least if you come at it from a of a, a fan or a you know quote unquote defender of Jane Fonda, uh, you could make the case that that these two guys kind of uh, treated her somewhat unfairly or with sort of a discriminatory uh, presumption. And uh, even Jonathan Rosenbaum, he wrote a 1975 review of this and made a comment at the top of his his essay published years later on the internet that he probably didn't really take into account the you know, misogynistic overtones of some of what was said. I don't know. Does anybody want to engage with that particular uh, idea at all? Well, that is certainly in there for sure. And I guess from my reading of it, at least is because of the relationship that both of the directors had with Jane, I just would have assumed that there was a, an understanding of um, who she was as a person in the sense that, look, I think that she would understand that this is not directly about her. It's about who she is as a figure in Hollywood and things like that. But it is hard to distance the fact that there is, you know, that 
that critique of who she is as a person, her, her physicality, her looks, and w- how she basically operates herself uh, in society. And, you know, this is 50 minutes of two dudes who are sitting there going, hey, look at this. Hey, look at that. And, you know, from a modern perspective or even a perspective from back then, it is it does carry a weight of misogyny to it for sure. But on the same reading, I do think that that, that critique of celebrity and how we approach, uh, you know, difficulties and, and trauma like the Vietnam War, um, I think that that is kind of the thing that emerges past it. And, you know, it is a very complicated film in a lot of ways because there are salient points that are raised throughout it. But on the same hand, it's like you're saying the right thing, but the words that you're using are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and perhaps we can just say it's just not the supreme final word on the subject, but it is a very fascinating uh, contribution to the discourse mm. uh, of, of what Jane Fonda and other, you know, well-intentioned celebrities may be trying to do and, and bringing the attention of a broader public to what they regard as very serious of problems and and issues that need to be addressed and and may challenge the conventional wisdom on on what should be done. You know, I mean, obviously, the idea that America should end its war in Vietnam and that we made a catastrophic mistake that's costing thousands of innocent lives and untold suffering for those who who survive. I mean, that was hardly an an, an unfamiliar position that was being made boisterously loudly by many even within the government you know elected officials and and others uh you know jane vonda just took that to another level by going you know behind the the combat lines and being given safe harbor i mean there's not a lot of you know more traditional american uh, celebrities bob hope could not have done one of his shows in in north vietnam uh, safely and securely and and the fact that she allowed her image to be used for what some would say was enemy propaganda, uh, you know, it, it's a controversial, very risky choice that she took. Um, and here she is now getting shit from the left wing, <laughs> uh, mm. not, not just, uh, her ideological opponents, but her supposed, you know, allies in, in the great cause. So it is pretty fascinating. And, and, it also, I maybe gets into some of, I think there were some tensions between Jane Fonda and Goran and Godard at, at one point, Fonda had threatened to to quit uh, Tuva Bien, and and also even going back to that very beginning scene, I I believe that she did not require a huge paycheck. She, uh, you know, to demonstrate her fidelity to the cause, she agreed to be compensated with a share of the film's proceeds. Both her and Montan said, "Yeah, we'll do this." for a share of whatever, you know, box office is generated rather than the kind of standard payday that they would have gotten from making a conventional movie within the French and, uh, and Hollywood industries respectively. So, so they, they were not just, you know, uh, expecting big money VIP treatment. They, they kind of wanted to you know, put their, put their, um, reputation in service of of what they thought was advancing uh, a commonly shared cause and yet uh, she cannot help but be a bit of a, a prima donna and again i don't say that to insult her but she was she was a celebrity who was used to working and operating a certain way and she had her own strong points of view one of her reasons for wanting to pull out of tuva bien originally was that she didn't want to work with men she wanted to work mm. with other women and and 
show more of a feminist solidarity. Well, here's Godard laying in the hospital. Uh, all of the funding, all of the you know preparations had been made, assuming that Jane Fonda was going to be part of this, and now here she is backing out. That probably did not sit really well with Garin, and apparently he had a pretty intense exchange with her. Uh, I've read somewhere where it was like a three-hour harangue trying to persuade her to stick with it. And, you know, she probably did not back down easily. So there may be some some spillover some for, you know, on a more of a personal ego to ego level where they maybe didn't get along. And then I, I do wonder about what Jane Fonda thought about the finished product where, you know, she's used to, especially at this stage of her career, she's the star, you know, I mean, at mm. least co-build. And now here she is. She's She has her moments. Uh, she's not, you know mocked or ridiculed openly in Tuva Bien, but it may not be what she was sold on when she agreed to join the project. And she may have had some reservations about how she was portrayed. I don't know. Um, it's, it's somewhat speculative. I don't know that I've read too much interviews with her about her appearance in that film or, or where it sits in her own sort of regard for her, her career. She's done so many things before and after uh, it would be fascinating to hear some of her thoughts on that. Maybe it's out there somewhere. I just haven't found it. But, uh, you know, there's there's the spillover between the personal and the political and kind of the, the larger scale issues that uh, Goran and Godard are raising in this little essay film, Letter to Jane. Mm. I think they, they definitely are misogynistic, but there's two ways they kind of uh, can skirt, this, skirt it. One is that they decide to use what they call third person to address her by not actually by sort of separating her from her identity as, as someone that they know, but just treating her as an actress, though they sort of contradict that by then bringing direct references to her family. So it's sort of hard for them to find that balance, but at least I think as a, um, as a linguistic exercise, I think that was the idea not to say you to Jane and, and to just keep saying Jane over and over, I think. Right. But secondarily, I think the just the general tone and the fact that they felt the need to do this at all carries with it this implication that they view themselves as necessary leftist arbiters and that this was a text that demanded their um, scrutiny, that this is this is a service that they can they can provide in a way that, um, yeah, they're, they're, if they're not the ones out there going on uh, behind the front lines either, but that because they have been gifted with their great intellectualism, maybe their position as an intellectual is to um, judge other intellectuals and keep them to task, which I, I think is, is both um, admirable and a little, you know, condescending and, and not humble for them to, they don't say, Hey, we are these genius intellectuals, but obviously if you're going to make a film that is this, you believe that your opinions on this topic are, needed. And, and that's certainly the, a critique of many of Qatar's essay type films uh, going even farther and farther into his career that these, these opinions seem to be coming from a place that implies that they have that they are the right opinions that they're good opinions. And the only thing I will I can give credit for again is the fact that I think he's just as willing to scrutinize his past self and keep himself to task. And mm -hmm. I think Goran is, is also perfectly willing to, to keep Godard to task as well once he came out of that sort of mentorship feeling. I think he's, he's one of the people who can speak most succinctly and objectively about what it was like to work together with him and what it was like to experience his art 
and to know who he was. So I think it's he's a pretty important piece of the the Godar puzzle. Garant is. And, oh, absolutely. And this yeah. this yeah. is the the um, the big punctuation of that before he, as he says in the really excellent interview that's on the disc and on the channel, that he had to break free and and do his own thing and and went to America and then ended up making the films you'll see on the Eclipse set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of view this as kind of a, a tennis match, if you will, and they they use that tennis match uh, analogy in uh, uh, Vladimir Ro- or yeah Vladimir and Rosa, uh, one of the films in the uh, box set, uh, the Godard Garand box set, and I and I use that tennis match because I think even though Godard and Garand are throwing out provocative ideas, they're they're willing to engage in the tussle. They they almost maybe expect that there's going to be a rebuttal, uh, but th- but they kind of like that somewhat feisty, combative, uh, you know, aspect to the ongoing debate and dialogue. They're not here to shut down the conversation with this presumptive last word. Uh, but here's what I've got. Here's my take. What do you got to throw back at me? I think that's the, the process that they're really trying to... Uh, employ here and that that goes back to the the marxist dialectic you know where you've got two sides kind of continually engaging in debate and refinement rather than um kind of a a one-size-fits-all orthodoxy which you know communism certainly has its own version of that where it becomes so entrenched and so dedicated to maintaining and preserving the party line and suppressing all dissent that it becomes totalitarian and authoritarian and it's in its practice, but the the theoretical heart is that you know you you do the you know the back and forth the, the dialectic which results in the synthesis and and but that the critique never stops you're always you know refining your arguments and and looking for the weak points and the vulnerabilities and whatever you know position or issue that you're looking to address there so uh, but you know <laughs> that means if you want to if you want to play with Godard you better be ready to step in the ring because he's gonna he's gonna push back hard and he's gonna throw out his his strong ideas and, and Garand just as much so um, so yeah I, I think that kind of brings us to a pretty de- decent uh, concluding point but again as I always do if there's any other final observations uh, Derek anything you wanted to throw into the into the mix here uh, no, nothing at the moment I mean uh, I okay. I'll be honest I've, I've tried I've tried visiting literature Jane before but uh, it, in trying to do this for this I was reminded why I'd never finished it but maybe this but I will say that this <laughs> I would say that this conversation is going to give me another opportunity to look at it again and and maybe we'll see so but uh fair enough yeah it's it's probably a piece where one has to be in the right mood and frame to really you know want to engage in it like i say it's it's a very dense text and uh reading the manuscript might not be a bad way of doing it so depending on how much time i've got i might even take a look at that um that link and see if I can clean it up a little bit and make it a little right. bit more user friendly. But that's probably a project for another day in time. I probably will want to just get this episode mixed and published fairly soon because that's my typical way of doing these things. So, okay, well, let's go ahead and consider that a letter to Jane is, has now been covered and we're kind of at the end of the episode here. Um, Derek, any updates, any kind of statements you want to share, just have what's going on with you lately, any any links or projects or anything of that sort you want to fill listeners in on? Sure. Uh, well, uh, if you go to djproject.cc, that gives you all kinds of links to everything that I've, I, I'm doing and want to put out there. Um, one of my 
my main music project, Kiryoshi, I just put out an album last month uh, through Bandcamp. You can get you can get it on Spotify, uh, Apple Music, iTunes, all the major digital music platforms. So I'm really I'm really glad to have that finish and have that out there for people to listen to. So excellent. Well, I will absolutely put it on my playlist, give it a listen, and then share some feedback with you once I've had a chance to give it a spin. So congratulations on. Uh, completing that project and getting out there for the the world to listen to so cool uh william how's things going for you up in new york city there uh been any traveling any plans for future shows uh what's happening with you these days well i'm back from my uk gig and my minnesota yeah. gig yeah and uh and now i got nothing i got no, I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm happy to to not have anywhere to go um and to do some projects. I, I'm after we're done today. I'm going to continue my shelving project because I just have stacks of movies on the floor. Okay. So I'm yeah. going to get that done, and eventually, you know, needed to buy another house and get more shelves. And <laughs> it's a shame they can't they can't you know find some way to have movies you know like on your computer or like files of them. They should invent <laughs> like a digital way to watch movies because I keep I keep I keep buying all these movies and I don't know what to do with all of them. All that packaging, you know, they're so, just so uh, they take. Bulky, I right? should just throw out all the boxes and just keep the discs. <laughs> yeah, they got those little <laughs> plastic sleeves you can slide them into. I don't want that. Right? Yeah, <laughs> whatever. All right. Well, congratulations on the successful tours of the UK and the the great American heartland there up in Minnesota. So good to have you back on the show too. So well, thanks for having me, David. It's always fun, and it was a long time coming. Three years waiting for this episode, and it was really, really fun. <laughs> well, we keep uh, we keep checking them off the list there, so uh, we'll we'll keep that process rolling there. Uh, Andrew, uh, kind of last bit here. I know you've already told us a little bit about the curb. Any got anything else coming up, or any other sort of stuff you want to <sighs> just share about uh, you know life in general, or what's on your mind? Oh, look, I mean, life's going well down in Australia. If anybody yeah. is interested in knowing that, it's it's perfectly fine down here. We're heading into summer, so it's going to be hot again. Um, but yeah, look, I it's mostly I'm getting head down, bum up, getting ready to um, get this uh, this book going and, and doing all yeah. the editing and stuff like that. So that's my main focus. Um, but I guess the, the kind of one thing I, I want listeners to know is that, you know, um, seek out Australian films. We do yeah. more than you probably know about. I, I keep on telling people, even people in the film industry here in Australia, they are surprised that we have more than 10 films released a year. Uh, this year I've watched about 60 Australian films and I've got another 20 to do. So, And these are know, like all recent releases you're talking about, not like uh, the whole history or what? Yeah, this is this is these are films that have been released in 2021. So wow, um, okay, you know, yeah. we do a fair few of them. We've got a very good indie film scene here. So yeah, if you are interested in Australian film, please uh, seek it out. We do a lot of great stuff. Um, yeah. I write about a lot of it, and yeah, are those are those suggest. films a lot of those films available for like non-Australian viewers? I mean, obviously, <laughs> there's going to be limited theatrical runs as far as but who's watching movies in theaters these days, anyways, right? Yeah, but, and Australian yeah. films don't tend to get released in cinemas too because Australian right. audiences are very apathetic to Australian films, which is the other reason why I do what I do to hopefully pick up one person out there who goes, oh, actually, we do something that's not right, you know, and change yeah. their mind. Um, but I think that it, it's really like a film-by-film film case scenario, and this is where Letterboxd or Just Watch comes into it and just plug it in there and keep it on your watch list until it pops up. Um, because sometimes they'll just randomly appear on Amazon prime or 
Netflix. Okay. Yeah. So, so different streaming platforms is where they kind of become accessible to people in other continents of this planet. Okay. And, and oddly, uh, oddly America tends to get them a lot longer before we do. Um, Oh, really? Interesting. (laughs) I don't understand that. Yeah. Boy. Hmm. Well, we've got a, we've got a consumer's market up here, I guess, is one way of looking at it. So, so yeah. So speaking of consumer's markets, <laughs> we've kind of uh, come to the end of this particular conversation. It's been a great couple of hours, really enjoyed it. And uh, again, you've opened up some new lines of insight. Uh, I'm also a bit relieved. I'll have to honestly say, I, I mean, this immersion into the work of Godard from 66 through 72 has been very memorable for me. It's been a, a pretty effective, uh, you know, study in, in uh, a pretty important figure of uh, cinema and a pretty important chapter of his very remarkable career. But I am ready to move on and explore some other facets of uh, this great art form. Uh, my next episode is going to be on the Lone Wolf and Cub series. And I'm not sure if I'm going to approach, I'm not going to do a single film per episode, which is, I guess, what we've done with the Zadoichi films. Um, I'm at least going to cover probably three of the films. I might even do a full series, maybe just two episodes where we just do the complete box. These were films that were released in mostly in 72. I think there were four films released in 72, two more films released in 73. So rather than breaking them down one film at a time per episode, I'm kind of going to just cram a few in and I might just, like I say, just do the whole box. Uh, so that'll be my next episode or episodes uh, kind of uh, as we kind of play with the format a little bit here. I'm not as rigidly confined to the chronological order of things, but it'll be nice to get into something that's just more straight up entertainment and, and um, you know, obviously the martial arts thing, the swordsmanship and, and all of that, a saga, six films, a uh, series, a continuous narrative, apparently. I haven't watched any of them yet, but I've got some guests who have and will kind of walk us through our impressions of the Lone Wolf and Cub films produced in Japan in 72 and 73. So that's what's coming up. Uh, I'm also talking with Trevor about another episode of Inside the Box, so I'll probably be turning my attention in that direction fairly soon. I've also got a backlog of some Kino Lorber Blu-rays that have been sent to me for review purposes, so I've got to kind of buckle down and get into some of those as well and um, fulfill my obligations, as you will, as a recipient of some corporate largesse. <laughs> you got you to shoot All your right, Remington no. commercials. <laughs> <laughs> that's right i gotta gotta punch the clock and pay my dues and and uh you know keep keep the flow going there so uh, thanks for listening and everybody really do appreciate the feedback and the attention that you give to this humble little project of mine uh andrew william derek always a great time talking with you andrew very happy to have you on and look forward to getting you out here somewhere down the line in the not too distant future all right yeah we'd love to be jumping back on this it was great fun thank you very much Excellent. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. All right. All right. Well, that's the episode. So, uh, two of up again. It's all good. See you later. Take care.